You're listening to Studies in the Book of James. If you'd like more resources like this or you're in the Kansas City area and would like to connect, you can find us at thebridgekc.church. We're going to try and make history today. We're going to try and cover more verses than I have any other week in this series. We've done, we've done two weeks and we've gone eight verses. We're going to try and go nine verses in one week. Some of you heard that and brought a helmet. Some of you brought a book. Whatever it takes to get through, it's going to be fun. It's going to be good. No, I actually, I took an internet poll to see how many people thought I could get through nine verses in one message, and uh, it was about 50-50, but I noticed that most of the people that thought I could go do it go to other churches. <laughs> so I, I appreciate your vote of whatever that was. Uh, just to get up to speed, last week we talked about, um, well, two weeks ago we started this, talked about James being the half-brother of Jesus and ident- identifying himself primarily as a servant. He was really clear at the very beginning of his book. He said, I'm just, I'm just a servant. That's all I am. And uh, then last week we talked at length about the power of God to give us wisdom as we step into hard circumstances and that any believer can grow and flourish in the most difficult of circumstances. Your life condition is not dictated by the circumstances you're under. You draw from a deeper source than the surface. And so we talked about that the last couple of weeks. Going into week three, uh, right now, uh, James 1, we're going to try and get through verses 9 through 18. And at first glance, this might look like a little bit of a hodgepodge of, of topics. Um, James is written in a bit of an interesting style. Some people compare it to the book of Proverbs in that it kind of goes from one thing to the next. But probably the reason James comes off to us like this is it was dictated rather than written. James paced in his office. I don't know what he did, but he dictated this and it was written probably by someone else's hand, but it is the book of James. And when we speak, our speaking style is different than our writing style. That's why a lot of people say, well, I can't really write out my ideas, but I get up in front of people and I can talk about them and I can make sense. It's because the rules are a little more relaxed and it's easier to speak than it is to write. You can train a writer to speak. You can't always train a speaker to write. And so this is how the book came to be, and it may contribute a little bit to how it feels sometimes as we read it. But oftentimes, as he circles back to things, he's making another point in a stronger and a clearer way, and that's kind of what what happens today. Looking at James 1, 9 through 18, we're going to divide it into three big ideas. So those of you that are looking to track progress, there will be three big ideas, and you're going to want to get them all. First big idea is going to be this, identify yourself. Identify yourself. So much is written about identity and what is nature and what is nurture. And, you know, in our family, that's an interesting study to think of as, we've, as uh, some of our kids are biological, some are not. And why are you that way? And how did you pick that habit up? And where did that all come from? And to some extent, though, we also choose by our behavior and our values how we identify ourselves. We identify with different things. And that's what James addresses head on very beginning uh, of our passage this morning. James 1, 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers its, the grass. The flower falls and its per- beauty perishes. 
so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So in this short little passage here, James draws a distinction that's easy to miss. Most people read this, quickly interpret it, and they interpret it in a, in a little bit of an odd way, and the wheels fall off the analogy really quick. They interpret it as poor Christians should be happy because they're poor, because one day they'll have everything that matters, and rich Christians should be happy that they're rich because one day everything they have will burn. That, that interpretation doesn't actually make sense. You kind of read that and you go, that's nice, but I, what is he actually saying there? That makes no sense at all. Take a second look. He writes, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly one celebrate his position. Why? Because as a brother, he is rich in what matters. The world we live in is a strange place because it encourages competition among people who are immortal to lay down everything for something they could only have for 60 or 70 years. It's a weird thing. For someone whose soul is going to live forever to be pressured into fighting and, and scraping and doing everything they can to collect things that are only going to last for a little while is a strange thing. And it makes sense if you're only going to live that long. You know, you live differently if you, if you realize you're not going to live very long. But as an immortal being, to pour all of our energy into things we're only going to have 60 or 70 years is an odd thing. And James points out that the person he's referring to is lowly, but he also calls him a brother. They're a believer in Christ with unique and eternal blessings. And that possession of being a brother is the identifying characteristic in this guy's life. The apostles understood these things really well and actually rejoiced at their lowly status for the, or the things that might have happened to them because they knew they were only going to live 70 or 80 years and they were pouring their life into things that were going to last forever. There's this funny story. It's funny because it didn't happen to us. But in the book of Acts, you go to the book of Acts and there's a story where the apostles are arrested by religious leaders because their ministry was effective in casting out demons and setting people free. Now, that was, the apostles loved it, and the people who were suddenly free loved it. It was only the demons and the religious people who were really irritated. Down through the course of history, demons and religious people have partnered on a number of initiatives. <laughs> and in this case, they were irritated, and so they send somebody to go arrest him. They were arrested, the apostles were arrested, were put in a prison. During the night, an angel appeared, opened the door, and tells them, go back to the temple and preach again. So by daybreak the next morning, there they were, standing in the temple, doing what they'd been told, and it went about like you would expect. They were immediately brought back to the religious leaders who weren't even aware yet that they had escaped from prison, where they were berated for doing what they were told not to do. And Peter tells them, we've got to obey God rather than man. The unspoken thing there, we've got to obey God rather than man, is this. We're going to live forever. We're only going to deal with you guys for a little while. The leaders were so angry, they were ready to kill them, and they would have done it, except a wise Jewish leader came along and said, you know what, let them go. If, if, it's of, if it's not of God, it'll die off, and if it is of God, you don't want to stand and oppose to it. The crowd landed on a compromise and beat them to within an inch of their life and released them, telling them never to preach again. Now, if you are the press agent for the apostles, how do you spin this into a good thing? Preached, got beat, got thrown in prison, escaped, preached again, got beat again. How do you tell that story and not be you know, kind of a dark day? Acts 5.41 says, 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. They said, no, it's a good day. It's a good day because we were identified as brothers. They knew where we stood. They knew what was important to us. The apostles certainly knew Jesus in a, in a way maybe that we don't because they, they saw him face to face. But they rejoiced in the idea that they were associated with him even if it meant taking a beating. Because to not be associated with them would be a fate worse than death. Their identity was in the fact that they were brothers with Jesus. Throughout the Bible, to be labeled a brother or a sister in Christ, even in the face of great struggle, was always considered a blessing beyond anything that earth could bestow. Whatever awards you're striving for, nothing compares to what in the Bible would have been called being considered a brother in the faith. That was the highest honor. Just like the most important part of James' life was his role as a bondservant, the thing that we should be most grateful for and identify most clearly with is the fact that we are brothers or sisters with Jesus himself. That should be our identifying characteristic. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but should suffer for his sake. He says, no, no, the best thing about who you are is the fact that you belong to him. And even if it means suffering, it's better to suffer as a brother than to live in opulence as one who is not. So in James 1.9, when he contrasts this lowly or poor brother with the rich man, James isn't even writing about money. He's writing about identity. He's writing about what do you call yourself? The lowly brother here in the story is a believer. It's interesting. James never uses that designation with the rich man. He says the lowly brother and a rich man. Why? Because that was the most important thing about that man. Does that mean there are those in the church, uh, there's nobody in the church that's wealthy? No, that's not true. Even through the New Testament, there were people of great wealth who were a part of the church. Jane, in, uh, Joseph in Acts 4 was a landowner. Dorcas in Acts 9 was a philanthropist. Cornelius in Acts 10 was a Roman official who gave a lot of money to the poor. Lydia in Acts 16 was a business owner. So there were people all through the New Testament who were people of means. They aren't bit players in the drama. They're key people in the story. But the most important thing about them was not their money. Their most important thing about them was their brotherhood with Christ. That's how they wanted to be identified. You can faithfully serve Christ with any amount of money in the bank. That's not a doubt. But if the amount of money in the bank serves to define who you are, your brotherhood or your sisterhood is in jeopardy. Because your identity is to be in him. And much to the humiliation of a man or a woman who identifies primarily with their bank balance, the day will come when everything that they hold dear and everything that they say that they are goes up in flames. And who are they then? Ask yourself, what is the most remarkable thing about you? If someone were to spend a day with you and they'd never spent any time with you before, what would their takeaway be? What would they, how would they describe you? Yeah, I met this guy. This was the most important thing to him. You say, what can you learn with the day? Well, you can learn a lot. You can learn what people talk about. You can learn what they think about. You can learn how they feel about things. What identifies you? The lowly brother, in this case, is better off than the rich man because he's a brother. And the rich man, if that's all that he is, has his identity linked to something with an expiration date. And the clock is ticking fast. So, identify yourself. 
Who are you? What are you going to be known for? And when they name you, what will they attach to your name? Is it that you're a brother or a sister in Christ? Or is it simply you had a lot of stuff that was going to burn? Big idea number one, identity. Big idea number two, cause and effect. Okay, cause and effect. The idea of cause and effect is is really simple. It's that our actions are a cause that lead to an effect that would not have happened if something had not happened. All right, parents, you're getting your morning cup of coffee number four. You turn around and you go back to the coffee and you hear a noise behind you. And when you turn around, the bowl of Cheerios that was on the high chair in front of your child is now on their head like a hat. Cheerios and milk have already run down into the car seat or the the high chair into places that were never meant to be reached by humans. Like, it's done. You're not going to ever get that. And you you look at that and you do not have to be Sherlock Holmes to go, something happened. (laughs) Cause and effect. The bull did not float up to the child's head. Something happened. You have a teenage daughter. You're sitting at home. You see her walk up the walk, she walks through the door, slams the door, stomps up to her room, slams the door, the music starts, something happened, okay? (laughs) Cause and effect, we understand this, we get it, and it can work both ways, it can be positive, it can be negative. You can be kind to your neighbor, and they can be kind to you, you cause, and there's an effect. It's neither positive or negative, but it is consistent. We model behavior, we do things, and things happen in reaction to that. And James goes into these next three verses by giving us two very different sets of causes and effects. James 1, 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Cause and effect are easier to observe in other people's lives, aren't they? We see people that get into a jam and we say, you could have seen that coming. You did X, Y, Z, and that happened. It's a little bit harder to discern in our own life because there's always a reason why we did what we did. But James ties this idea of consequences and to how we respond to trials and temptations. Now, he uses those words very distinctly when he talks about trials and temptations. Don't lump them together. Trials are the everyday things that come in people's lives that were unavoidable and are just hard. They're unavoidable, and they can be reacted to in steadfastness or in shaking, but they're, they're just part of natural life. Temptations are very different. We'll talk about those in a little bit. James uses a phrase Jesus used to describe those who stood fast in times of trial. He uses the phrase, blessed is the man, or blessed is the woman. Blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial. Everybody thinks that the big prizes that are given out in life are given for the most heroic displays of bravery or accomplishment. The awards always go to the biggest, the best, and the first. In reality, there is a blessing or an award in the Bible for just hanging in there and being consistent and being steadfast in the time of trials. There's a huge reward for that. 
Jesus, or James calls it the crown of life. It's not just a pretty phrase, you know, good job, little buddy, you get a crown. It's not like that. It's not a participation trophy. It's bigger than that. It's the same crown of life, the same award that is given to those who suffer and die for their faith. It's the same one. In the early chapters of the book of Revelation, there are letters dedicated to the different churches across Asia. And they use the word church, they mean it a little differently than we use it. What we would, uh, we say church, what we normally mean is congregation. Okay, this is the congregation. Yeah, it's a church, but it's not the church. I passed seven churches on the way here this morning. And uh, I prayed for all of them as I went because we're all a part of the, they're just congregations. They're all a part of the church. So he wrote to these seven cities and he writes to the church in, da, da, da. And in some cases, in Ephesus and others, there were multiple groups of believers that were meeting. He was writing to all of them. So it wasn't a message to just one congregation like this. He's writing to the city. This is why, one of the reasons why I reach out and befriend pastors in our city because we're all pastoring one big church in a sense. And so he writes to these seven different churches, and in five of them, he gives them pretty stern corrections. He tells them things like, you've lost your first love. He writes very stern things to them, and he writes them some encouragements. Two of the churches, though, he has actually no correction for. Smyrna and Philadelphia don't receive any correction. And he tells Smyrna that they have gone through trials and tribulations and poverty, and slander. And then he tells them it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that some of them will be imprisoned for their faith. Is this temptation? No, it's just trials. It's just difficulty. They didn't cause this. And then he gives them the same promise that James gives us in chapter 1. Revelation 2.10, he says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for the 10 days you will have tribulation, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It's the same thing that James talks about for those who stand steady in trial. That is something that is achievable by you. In James' first example, just like the Lord's words in Revelation, the cause is faithfulness, the effect is reward. The cause is faithfulness, the effect is reward. That's what comes from faithfulness. You see a life of faithfulness and a crown of life follows. Now, some of you feel like you don't have what it takes to be recognized, to be honored, or to be put on a stage. Maybe you've always played second fiddle, maybe to a sibling. Someone always overshadowed your effort. Even in the craziest ways, you have felt second class most of your life. Let me encourage you. You have the wherewithal to receive the most honor that a human being is able to receive. Simply in faithfulness. The reward of the crown of life goes to those that are faithful. Faithfulness is the cause. The effect is reward. It leads to a crown of righteousness, and it supersedes all recognition that you might possibly think you missed out on all through life. Determine in your heart today, today's trials will not kill us. We're going to stand, we may be battered, we may be beaten, but we're going to be steadfast because people who are steadfast like that repeatedly are the kind of people who get mentioned in the Bible. It's like that lyric from you too. They're advertising in the stars for people like us. They are, the world is looking for people who are just faithful and steadfast. It leads to a crown of life and reward beyond what we would dream there's a scripture used in weddings about faithfulness. And if you use this in your wedding, uh, forgive me. 
because it's not really a wedding scripture. In Ruth 1.16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from you following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. That declaration of faithfulness, here's why it's awkward at weddings, because she's saying it to her mother-in-law. <laughs> it really is. Can you imagine working that into a ceremony where the mother-in-law comes forward? <laughs> but he said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, was a widow. And her family had moved... To Moab because there was no grain in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the breadbasket, and there was literally no grain in the land. And so they moved to Moab where there was where there was land and grain. Her boys grew up. They married Moabite women. Eventually, Ruth, uh, Naomi became a widow, and her sons died. So these three widows, okay, are together. And Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws, "I'm going back to Bethlehem. There's there's bread there now. There's I'm, I'm going there. I'm hungry, and that's where I'm going." You are released to go back to your families. There's no expectation you would come with me. Your husbands are dead. And she, she told uh, her other daughter-in-law, Orpah, the same thing. Go back to your families. But Ruth remained faithful to the house of her husband and her mother-in-law. She said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She was faithful, and she followed her and went back. She traveled back to the homeland of her deceased husband when there would have been no reason to do that other than her faithfulness to her mother-in-law. All of this story spins out. In the end, Ruth is named in the genealogy of Jesus. She is in the timeline of the Savior of the universe would have never happened if she wasn't faithful. So all she had to do is be faithful. And that happened for her. So James turns a corner now and he quits talking about trials and he starts talking about temptations. So we're still under the idea of cause and effect, but we're not talking about just the, the hard things that come. We're actually talking about temptation here. It isn't related to trials that cause us to get discouraged, but it's temptation that draws us to give in to sin. Discouragement and sin are two totally different things. Some of you are discouraged and the devil has told you you're in sin. You're not in sin. You're just, your heart's down. But discouragement and sin are different things. And before James gets into the cause and effect of temptation, he clears the air that God is not tempting anybody. He's like, you're not tempted by God. He, he says that right there. That's not what's happening. For those of you that find yourself up late at night when everybody else has gone to bed, you're sitting in front of the computer and you're tempted to watch things you shouldn't watch and look at things. God did not tell you to stay up late. God told you to go to bed. Okay, you can't blame God for struggling with that temptation. It's not that I, that I have no compassion for that. I just want to make sure that you understand he didn't do that to you. For those that are filling out your tax forms and you're really tempted to not include a certain amount of income that might not get caught, the Lord is not tempting you. Okay, that is not God telling you, you could give that to missions. God doesn't need your income tax cheating money. And if you're going to cheat on your taxes, you're not going to do that anyway. But that's not God. He's really clear. God, don't use God as an excuse. What's God putting me through? That's not God. In fact, James doesn't even credit the devil with tempting you. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Daggone it, I did this to myself. My temptation is my own stuff. When you are being tempted, it's because of your own desires. You conjured up that temptation all on your own. You stayed up too late in front of a computer when you know there's a weakness. 
You sat down to do your taxes and hid information. You did that with your own desires. You stoked the fires of bitterness towards someone rather than extended forgiveness. And whenever you have a want to in the way of sin, Satan will find a way to help. Conjuring up temptation is the easiest thing in the world. Some of you could manage to be tempted before you left the parking lot here today. It's easy. And James says that when that desire, in verse 15, he says, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Cause and effect, your temptation and your desires, and where it leads is sin. And suddenly there's a sin in your life that for whatever reason you didn't see coming. I'm reminded of the story of Adam and Eve, and I've always thought this was comical, when, uh, when they have their first son. Keep in mind, Eve missed the junior high health class that explained how these things happened. She had no doula. She had no nothing. And you can almost, when you read it in different versions, you can almost sense the astonishment when she gives birth to Cain. She says, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. It's like, who saw this coming? It's no different than allowing evil desires to conceive in our hearts and sin come forth and we're surprised. I've produced a sin. Yeah, because the behavior that you were engaged in leading up to that produces a sin. That's what happens. That's the cause. That's the effect. That's what happens when we sin. The cause and effect runs through several steps, but when we surrender to temptation, our own selfish desire produces death again. There is an effect that results from faithfulness. It is a reward. And there is an effect that results from sin and its death. And in either case, we have to admit we knew what was coming. We have to admit that. So the first big idea is identity. The second one is cause and effect. The third big idea is who God really is or what is God's identity. Now, here's where James starts to tidy it up. I can almost see him looking to the person who's writing all this down saying, see, I told you I was going to get back to the identity thing. There's more order to this than you realize. He starts to tidy up the idea. It seems all over the map at first, but suddenly he's talking about his own identity, who he really is. The first sin in the Bible, when Adam and Eve sin, it's because they considered a God who was manipulative and trying to keep them for their potential. You read it, they realize they've got a misunderstanding about God. It's an attack on God's identity. Did God really say? Is God really like that? Does he really, did he promise to do that? And we attack God's identity and in that we find room to sin. So James wants us to have an accurate picture of God's identity so that we cannot say we do not know what he's like or we cannot accuse him. Don't, and he starts out this passage with this phrase, don't be deceived. In other words, don't fall for the lie that God is any other way other than how James is about to describe him. So don't, don't fall for the lie that he's any different than this. And in James 1, 16 to 18, he lays out four characteristics in just a couple of verses about who God is. <clears throat> James 1, 16 to 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. In other words, pay attention because you need to know this. You can get this wrong. It'll mess you up. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. So he gives us in these couple of verses four quick characteristics. This is of the identity of God. He says he is to begin with the originator of all that is good and perfect. Good and perfect are high standards. You can't live that way. I can't live that way. I originate a lot of stuff and very little of it is perfect or some of it's not even good. But everything God has ever done has fit into that category of good and perfect. We don't live that way. Romans seven eighteen describes us and says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. So even though I want to do good, I want to be, I just, I just can't pull it off. God pulls it off day after day after day after day after day. Everything he does is good and perfect. He's the opposite of that. All things good and perfect come from him. And when you begin to see what he is doing in your life in an accurate way, you begin to even see goodness and perfection you didn't see was there before. You know, with our work with adoption, um, I, over the years had had literally hundreds of conversations of people's expectations about what it was like for them to adopt a child. And they often would come and have a very narrow idea of the kind of child they want to adopt. Now, these are good people. Many, many, many of them love God. They just haven't thought this through. And I remember I was on a phone call with a lady one time, and she literally said this to me. This was years ago. I'm much more spiritual now. But, um, so you can imagine how bad I was then. Uh, she said, we have... Two little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boys, if you could get us a little girl like that, that would be perfect. And then the sound she heard in the background was like my head exploding. And before my wife could stop me, I said, I think you should collect spoons. She was like, I'm, I'm sorry. I said, you can get exactly what you want, hang it on the wall by the other ones. I was so bugged by that. I say, and I've gotten better. I'm just, it just, but what I've learned is as people get involved in the adoption process and God opens their hearts, they often end up matched with a child they may not have imagined earlier. And it looks perfect to them. You know, I've watched children bring home, or parents bring home children with, uh, with disabilities that they didn't expect. And at two, three years old, they, that, that child's perfect. Because what God does in our life, even when it's hard, it's perfect. It's good. He is the originator of all that. Some of you are in situations now that are actually exactly where you should be. You feel very confined, but it's where God has put you. Because he's the originator of all that is good and all that is perfect. The second identifier there that he gives in that passage, he calls him the father of lights. If you look in the book of Genesis, the very thing created, boom, there was light. That was from the very beginning. From there on, everything he has made. Why is that important? It sets him apart as the creator of everything. The God who spoke light where there was only darkness and brought life where there was only death is the God of miraculous ability to speak into your life and your situation. He calls him, he's the father of lights. Another thing he speaks about his identity is the idea that he is unwavering in character. Absolutely unwavering. He doesn't change. He says he's unwavering in character. The King James Version says it this way. There is no shadow 
or variation of change. Thomas Chisholm was born in a log cabin in Franklin, Kentucky, which is about as far south as you can go in Kentucky before you find yourself in Tennessee. And if his life was marked with anything, it would have been appeared to be disappointment. He became a teacher at age of 16. Then in his mid-20s, he came to Jesus, entered the ministry at 29, stepped out of the ministry a year later due to his poor health, ends up working in insurance somewhere. But at night, when he would go home from his insurance office, he would sit and he would write poems because his heart just burned for the Lord and for the character of the Lord. These poems he'd mail off to different publishing houses, and most of them never went anywhere, but he mailed one to Moody Bible Institute where it caught the eye of a musician, said, maybe there's something we can work with here, starts to write out some chords, resulting in a song that most of us have probably sung at times when we did not understand what was happening to us. And it starts with the idea that God never changes, and he is unwavering. The song that Chisholm wrote, as great as thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning in thee. Some of you are facing a season in life where things change, 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 change. The most comforting thing you could possibly know is God is the originator of all that is good and perfect, and he never changes. Not for a second. God is even, isn't even remotely rattled by your circumstances right now. Final characteristic in that whole passage is that he is focused on our redemption. I want to read it. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He is focused on our redemption, that we'd be a first fruit. What God is doing on the face of the earth right now, he is doing in you. Thanks for listening to this episode of our 14-part series on the book of James. If you're in the Kansas City area, we would love to meet you. Check us out at thebridgekc.church.